Thank you for the time of prayer this evening. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 6. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. It's a big chunk of your Bible right there. If you can find Isaiah, you're, you're pretty close. And uh, if you just start flipping, you will find Isaiah, I guarantee it. Ezekiel chapter 6. The title of the message this evening is Remnants in a Wicked Land. Now, this morning's message was a bit heavy. Last week, Sunday nights, um, we didn't have our, our service. We had our praise service in the afternoon. But, but Ezekiel and 1 Corinthians are both kind of heavy series. But this evening, as we step into Ezekiel chapter 6, and we're going to cover verse, chapter 6 and 7, a good chunk of Scripture, I really don't want this message. It's not my desire, my intent... To, that this message would be one that would be, we might say, negative. That what we're going to be talking about this evening is the chastening hand of God. Now, we learned this morning about separation. And as we talked about separation, we recognize that uh, among believers, there's this thing called church discipline. And church discipline is not intended to be something that would cause believers to become outcasts of the church, but rather it is a needful separation in order that that believer could recognize the, the seriousness of their sin, repent of their sin, and come back to proper relationship with God and proper fellowship with believers. Now, as we're going to look into the Word of God this evening and we're talking about the chastening hand of God, we'll see the chastening hand of God upon His people Israel. And we're going to draw out principles about the chastening hand of God to our lives. And what I want to lay down as an immediate foundation is that the chastening hand of God is not, repeat, is not a bad thing. We're going to see as we get toward the end of our sermon that if you do not experience the chastening hand of God when you are in unrepented sin, then you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. To see the chastening hand of God upon your life is to recognize that you are indeed one of God's children because God only chastens His children. However, that doesn't mean because it's not a bad thing, that doesn't mean we want to be there. We don't want the chastening of hand, uh, hand of God upon our lives. We don't want Him to have to chasten us. And so we're going to talk this evening about the chastening hand of God. And I trust that as we work through the message, it's going to start out kind of, kind of uh, depressing. But as we work through the chastening hand of God, what we're going to see is that the chastening hand of God is a means to an end. And I trust that at the end of this message, what we will actually find, chastening itself seemeth, seemeth to be grievous, as the Scriptures say. Indeed, it works in us something far greater. And it's what we want when we stray from God. And it's what we need when we stray from God. And so we're going to look at it this evening as I've been doing on, on uh, Sunday nights with Ezekiel. We're going to summarize the passage. And then I'm going to preach a few points based upon the passage. Ezekiel chapter 6 in your Bibles with me this evening. Ezekiel is told by the Lord in chapter 6 to prophesy. To prophesy against the mountains. To prophesy against the hills. To prophesy against the rivers even to prophesy against the valleys in Israel. Look at what it says, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, 
Set thy face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. If you look at that last phrase there, I will destroy your high places, what we see is the reason why God was prophesying or had Ezekiel prophesy against the physical geography of the land. This physical of the geography of the land had become the instrument through which Israel had been worshipping false gods, worshipping idols made with hands. Perhaps you've heard of the term the high place before. It was an elevated place of land or a grove. A grove was a patch of trees. They would go to the mountains. The valley of Hinnom was the place where Manasseh sacrificed children on the altars of Baal. And so the valleys and the hills and the mountains were the physical locations upon which Israel was practicing wicked idolatry against God. So God says, Ezekiel, prophesy against the valleys. Prophesy against the hills and say this, there's a sword coming against your high places. There's a sword coming against your places of idolatry. I am not just going to stop at chastening the people. I am going to tear down those altars, those false gods, myself. If you won't do it, Israel, I'll do it. So that's what God is saying as we step into chapter 6. The promise God gives is in verses 4 through 7. And your altars shall be desolate, and your images shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones round about your altars. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. And your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down in your works may be abolished, and the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. I would like you to take a particular look at that final phrase in verse 7. If you are in the practice of underlining in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that phrase, ye shall know that I am the Lord. In our text today, between chapters 6 and 7, This phrase will be used seven times. It's interesting. In the book of Ezekiel, this phrase, and ye shall know that I am the Lord, is found 63 times in total. The next closest number of times this is found in any book is in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the phrase is used nine times. Speaking of how Pharaoh shall know that God is the Lord, how Egypt shall know that God is the Lord. In these two chapters alone, we see it found seven times. There's a theme running through the book of Ezekiel. And one of the themes that you will find running through the book of Ezekiel is is captured in this phrase, Ye shall know that I am the Lord. See, the nation of Israel had wandered. They had wandered from God, but God had not wandered from them. And God wanted them to know something. God needed them to know something. God needed for them to see something. And not only will the book of Ezekiel be themed around this, but the very plan of God from the time of the captivity to the day that Jesus Christ's feet touched the Mount of Olives in the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can be themed for the nation of Israel around this phrase, ye shall know 
that I am the Lord. And we'll see that as we continue this evening. In verses 11-14 through 14 of this chapter, chapter 6, God foretells the death of the people in the city. Death by sword. Death by famine. Death by plague. Their sin will find them out. There will be no escape from its consequences. They shall know, indeed, that God is God. Yet in the midst of this prophecy, and let me just point you to this as we keep trudging through here. In the midst of this prophecy of destruction, God adds words of promise. Look at verse 8. Yet will I leave a remnant that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations when ye shall be scattered throughout the, through the countries. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations whether they shall be carried captives because I am broken with their whorish hearts which have departed from me and with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. You say, where's the hope there, Pastor? The hope is found in the fact that God says, Israel, here's the thing. I will leave a remnant and I will not give up on you. I will seek you and I will seek you and I will seek you until the day that you will finally abhor your sin and finally come back to me. That's the chastening hand of God. It's what we're looking at this evening. God is not abandoning His people. God is chastening His people back to Himself. He's not leaving them to be consumed apart from Him. He is not abandoning them to be consumed without remedy. When the people are scattered, this remnant will see their sin. They will loathe their sin. They shall know that God is God. And they will return to Him. Can you see the reconciling purpose of God in this judgment? Can you hear His mercy underneath His judgment? Can you, can you hear it? It's there. Can you see the undertones of God's love as He is declaring this terrible judgment on the people? It's there. It's there for us to see. Chapter 7 is a psalm. A lamentation to be exact. It's broken up into five stanzas. These stanzas aren't very easy to decipher in a King James Version. Some of the modern translations will actually break the psalms up into their psalm sections. That can be very helpful. The King James Version does not do that. Let me break up these sections for you as some people um, break them up. Uh, this is how I decipher the psalm. In verses 2 through 4, we see an announcement of the judgment's purpose. Look with me in those verses. Also, thou son of man, thus saith the Lord God unto the land of Israel, an end, the end is come upon the four corners of the land. Now is the end come upon thee, and I will send mine anger upon thee, and will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense upon thee all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare thee, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense thy ways upon thee, and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. That's the announcement of the judgment, the reason for the judgment. In verses 5-9, through nine, he says, evil is coming. 
in verses 10 through 14, he announces that the rod of correction has been prepared. That God has prepared a rod. It's a rod of correction and it is ready to be used on this nation. In verses 15 through 22, God describes how this rod will humble them before God. That this rod will be for the purpose of humbling them. That is why it's happening. And then in verses 23 through 27, He reiterates, don't, don't think it's not coming, Israel. This evil is surely coming upon you. Now, we're not going to read all of that passage this evening. But let me repeat the, the, the verses that break up this psalm. If you want to write it down and then maybe perhaps in your own study this week, take some time and to see how this psalm, this lamentation, is broken up. Verses 2 through 4, the announcement of judgment. Verses 5 through 9, the declaration that evil is coming. Verses 10 through 14, the announcement that the rod of correction has been prepared for them. Verses 15 through 22, the declaration that this rod will and is intended to humble them before God. And then verses 23 through 27, a reiteration that evil is surely coming. Now scattered throughout this psalm, this lamentation, we see the phrase, ye shall know that I am the Lord. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 9. It's in verse 27. God will not deviate from His plan because He will not deviate from His purpose. He will reconcile His people unto Him. They shall know that He is the Lord. It will happen. So we theme this sermon around this reality, the reality of God's chastening. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 tells us something very important about God's chastening. The wise King Solomon is writing to his son and he says this, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of His correction. For whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth, even as a father, a son, in whom He delighteth. Don't, don't despise the chastening hand of God. This is, not, this is not a sermon that is intended to make you feel terrible. It's a, it's a sermon that's intended to make you recognize that as God chastens you unto Himself, He is declaring to you His love. And that He is a jealous God. And that He will not abide you drifting from Him. That He wants you to Himself. That He loves you too much to share with sin. And that He will chasten you until He has you. Until you are His. If you're His child. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. Don't be weary of His correction because it shows that the Lord loves you. Because whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom He delights. God was not bringing this evil upon Israel because of His hate for them, but because of His love for them and His hatred for their rebellion. So too. Now we are not Israel. The church is not Israel. But we are a people that have a particular relationship with God whereby we call ourselves God's children and God calls us, or excuse me, God calls us His children we call God our Father. We are indeed the children of God as believers in Jesus Christ. And so these principles can apply to us. God does not chasten the unbeliever. And God does not chasten us for punishment. He chastens us for correction. He does not act in hate. He does not act in vengeance. 
He, sees, he looks down at us and he sees his son Jesus Christ. There's no hatred. There's no vengeance. But what he does do is lovingly and faithfully draw his children back to himself through chastening and through correction. Perhaps you will see as we walk through these three points this evening that you are in chastening right now. That you are being chastened. That you are being corrected. May I encourage you as we talk through these points, number one, don't despise it. But number two, know why it's there. It's not there for God to exercise wrath and vengeance against you. He doesn't do that against His children. When you sin, God is not going to take vengeance on you for sinning against Him. That's not what God does to His children. But when you sin and you don't repent... God will in love chasten His children. And by the way, it ends when you are aligned with God again. So may it be a compulsion. Realign yourselves with God. Let's talk about our points this evening. The first point we're going to see, and we're going to, we're going to jump around to a few different points of this passage I've just walked through. The first point we're going to see is that God's long-suffering has a breaking point. Second, we're going to see that God's authority shall not be mocked. Third, though, we're going to see that God's chastening, as we've talked about, is a means to an end. God's long-suffering has a breaking point. Turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. We've read it already. Within the promise of God, whereby He promises to leave a remnant, God explains to Israel that they have filled up His cup of long-suffering. Look at verse 9. And they that escape of you shall remember Me among the nations whither they shall be carried captives. Because, here he says, I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go a-whoring after their idols, and they shall loathe themselves for their evil, which they have committed in all their abominations. God's long-suffering has a breaking point. God tells the nation here that they have broken him through their unfaithful hearts. He calls it a whorish heart. God often describes the nation of Israel as a woman. We're going to see this particularly emphasized in Ezekiel chapter 16. He oftentimes describes Israel as his bride, as his bride that he has entered into a covenant with. And he is saying here that this bride, Israel, has been unfaithful to him and this unfaithfulness had been tolerated, but now they have broken him. They have broken his long suffering. Literally, their unfaithfulness has been bending him and bending him and bending his patience and bending his mercy to the point where one day it just snapped. And the day that it snapped, he could no longer give them mercy. It was time for judgment. Did you know that God has a breaking point? A point where when His children persist in unrepented sin, He will sovereignly act to bring that child back to Him. Now, we've talked about it. Let me be clear. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we genuinely confess our sin before God, that sin is gone. It is confessed. It is forgiven. It is forsaken. God does not hold our sin over our heads when we've genuinely confessed it. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Now, though fellowship is immediately restored upon confession and forsaking, there may still be consequences for that. 
Sin always has consequences. I hope you know that. And there may be consequences for that sin upon you, upon your family. The consequences may be spiritual. They may be physical. We can't cheat the sowing and reaping principle. However, 1 John 1.9 makes it very clear that fellowship is restored the moment we confess and then forsake our sin. And so, I'm not talking here about a breaking point where you do something, you, conf- you, you genuinely confess it and forsake it, and you do it again and you genuinely confess it and forsake it. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about God's breaking point. The chastening hand of God is reserved for those who persist in unrepentant sin. The chastening hand of God is upon those believers who remain separated from God through their sin, who have wandered. Who are not, it's not that they're returning through confession. It's that they have walked away and they are not confessing. And they are persisting in unrepented sin. And they are refusing to humble themselves before God. They are fleeing from the throne of grace. The, the, the idea here is the Jonah. The Jonah who knows he's doing wrong, he flees the opposite direction from God and God says, I'm not going to let my child flee from me. This is the David who, after he sinned with Bathsheba, has the judgments pronounced upon him because he knew he had sinned, he knew he had done wrong, and he refused to repent of that sin. And then we see in Psalm 51, David begging God to restore, to mend the bones that have been broken. Literally, the chastening of God upon him was so heavy, was so difficult to bear, that he was, he was being crushed under the weight of his conviction. And as he confesses it to God, he says, God, may the bones that you have broken be restored. We're talking about those men who have sinned and who aren't repenting of their sin. And this does not mean that it's just terrible, wicked men. Notice the two men I've quoted tonight. Jonah and David. Jonah was a prophet of God. David was a man after God's own heart. So don't write me off and say, okay, pastor, I see you're talking about those guys that are really far off. I can just check out for the rest of the message. This one's not about me. It's, it's, that's not what I'm saying tonight. It's not at all what I'm saying tonight. But what I'm saying is if you are living a life where you sin and you pinpoint that sin and you confess that sin and you forsake that sin, then the chastening hand of God won't be upon you. God's not going to chasten you for sin you've already confessed and He's already forgiven. So, what Christian is it that needs to fear pushing God beyond the breaking point? Fear pushing God beyond His breaking point when you are a believer who is persisting in unconfessed sin. When there's something in your life that is wrong, that you know it's wrong, that you've been convicted of it, but you're refusing to get rid of it, you're refusing to change it, you're refusing to alter your course. I speak not of those who regularly struggle with a sin, but genuinely repent. I speak not of those who are working through that process of sanctification that we're all working through. I speak of those who know you're in sin, but refuse to repent. To those of you that are there, You ought to fear that breaking point. That point where God will no longer allow you to run. Where God will break and then will chasten you back to Himself. 
Now, for those of you that, as every one of us does, have sin in your lives and you commit that sin and you, you repent of that sin and you forsake that sin, how is it that I can be so confident telling you tonight that you would not be under the chastening hand of God? Let's talk about that for just a few minutes. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, the proverb says this, A just man falleth seven times and riseth again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. We see a principle there about a just man is not a man who doesn't fall. He's a man that falls but gets himself back up. That falls but repents of his sin. But the passage that really helps us is found in a few different places in Scripture. Matthew chapter 18 and Luke 17. Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 and 22. Peter asks Jesus a question. To which Jesus responds reflecting the character of God. Verse 21 says this, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Should I forgive him seven times? And in the Luke passage it says, how many times a day should I forgive him? Seven times every day? Peter thought he was doing pretty good here. Seven times is the number of perfection. In Hebrew culture, to say seven times would be perpetually. Shouldn't I perpetually forgive him? And Jesus Christ ups the ante. He says, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Seventy times seven times a day, you should forgive your brother when he comes to you and asks genuinely for forgiveness. And then immediately after this, Jesus goes on in Luke 17 passage to give a parable. It's a parable of a forgiven steward who fails to forgive his brother. And I'd like to draw your attention to that passage. Turn with me to Luke 17. Excuse me, it might be the Matthew 18 passage. Let me see if I got that wrong in my notes because I'm not seeing it in Luke 17. Yes, I'm sorry. Please turn with me to Matthew 18. Give you a moment since your pastor's got you flipping all over the place in your Bibles. Matthew 18. We see in verses 21 and 22, Peter asking him this question. He jumps right into a parable and he says this. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. That, by the way, is an absolutely impossible amount of money to repay. But for much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me that thou owest. A hundred pence was a very small amount of money. 
and his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, and he went and cast him into prison that he, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest it of me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. It's an important parable. And we see a principle that reflects God's character in this. That to the man who would come before his Lord and would get down on his knees and ask for forgiveness... There is no sum, there is no act, there is no sin that God would look down upon and say, no, that one is not forgiven. Of course, we recognize that that is to the genuine believer. That even if it were a sum of 10,000 talents to be reckoned according to a man's sin, that the Lord would not withhold forgiveness of that debt. And the application was, how dare you then not forgive a brother? But what we see here is that God is a forgiving God. That He didn't just tell the servant, you can have more time to pay off your 10,000 talents. He said, it's done. It's forgiven. It's gone. No penalty. No debtor's prison. No chain gang. You don't have to crawl up the aisle on your hands and knees to prove to God that you're sorry. You don't have to slit your wrists and pour blood upon an altar to prove to God that you're sorry. God knows your heart. And if you are repentant, He has and will, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. You don't have to fear your God in that way. Paul states that the divine command to forgive is rooted in the design, a divine example of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so the one who genu- genuinely repents of his sin before God is a man that will find no chastening hand of God upon him, nor are the limits of God's long-suffering flexed to their breaking point. Now, this does not mean that there will not be consequences. Let me reiterate that. The consequences of sin are very different from the chastening hand of God. The divine chastening hand of God and the consequences of a man's sin are two different things. God's chastening hand is for the unrepentant believer. If you are a believer, actively living in unrepentant sin this evening, just do know that the long-suffering of God has a breaking point. You may say, God, God hasn't done anything to me. I'm fine. You may be flexing Him right now. And know that that flex only goes so far. And there is a breaking point. And then the chastening hand of God will come upon you. So God's long-suffering has a breaking point. Don't test it. Point number two. God's authority will not be mocked. God's authority will not be mocked. We've already talked much about this phrase. Ye shall know that I am the Lord. When a human, either believing or unbelieving, lives a life 
of unrepented sin, from a spiritual standpoint, what he is doing is refusing the authority of God over his life. When an unbeliever is living in sin, which every unbeliever is living in, in perpetual sin because they are in unbelief, as that believer, unbeliever lives in unbelief, he is living in a continual process of rejecting the authority of God. When a believer is living in unrepented sin, he is in a current process of rejecting God's authority over him, God's claim on his life. He is telling God that what God has said in His Word is not of sufficient credibility to Him to base His life and His actions upon. In a word, He's mocking the authority of God. And we see this phrase in Ezekiel chapter 6, if you'll turn back there with me, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. It's a phrase that is pointed directly at the element of the heart of man that God is going to work in such a way that men will know in their hearts who He is, who He claims to be, and that He is who He claims to be. Such was the promise that God made in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read that verse to you. Habakkuk says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. This verse is quoted in Romans chapter 14 verse 11. It's also quoted in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10. That every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the moral of this story as we trace these verses, is this. One day, everyone will align themselves with the reality of who God is. Everyone will declare God to be holy. Everyone will declare Jesus to be the only begotten Son of God. Everyone will live in absolute submission to God. Every unbeliever will one day bow his knee before God and say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Every believer who is persistent in unrepentant sin will one day completely bow himself before God, align himself with God, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everyone, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now some will confess this only on Judgment Day. Those will be unbelievers. Till the day that they die, they will refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is God. They will refuse to believe that He is the only begotten Son of God. But they will confess Him as Lord on Judgment Day. Some will have confessed it, but will not have lived it. These will suffer loss. They will stand before the throne of God, and of course they will have declared Jesus Christ to be God alone, and yet they have lived their lives in such a way that they will have no crowns to throw before Him, to throw at His feet. Some will have confessed it and will have indeed lived like it. And they will be rewarded for their life of faithfulness to God. Isaiah 64.4 tells us, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. To the man that will earnestly, faithfully, 
patiently live day in and day out in, in perpetual fellowship with God through confession, through sanctified living. The Scriptures tell us that eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard. It has not even entered into your heart the blessings that God has prepared for the one who will patiently, earnestly walk with God. What a promise. And see, the chastening hand of God, the chastening hand of God is not there for a vengeful God to slam you into the ground and to kick you while you're down. The chastening hand of God is the hand of a loving God looking down and saying, my child, I long to bless you, but you're not in a blessable place right now. Will you align yourself with me? Will you bring yourself back into alignment with me so that I can bless you? Will you obey me so that I can bless you? So that one day, as you stand in heaven, the spiritual blessings will be innumerable. Your eye has not seen the kind of blessings you will receive on that day. Your ear has never heard of the blessings that you will receive on that day. Your heart cannot fathom what I've prepared for you, my child, if you will just come back in line with me. That's the chastening hand of God. And that's what we see in our final point. Certainly God's long-suffering has a breaking point. Don't test that breaking point. God's authority will not be mocked. Don't try to mock His authority. But third and finally this evening, God's chastening is a means to an end. God's chastening is a means to an end. Look with me in chapter 7 again. Verse 16. We'll read through verse 19. But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountain like doves of the valleys. All of them mourning, every one for his iniquity. All hands shall be feeble and all knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror shall cover them. And shame shall be upon all faces and baldness upon all their heads. They shall cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Do you want to know how you can really know that these two chapters are speaking specifically about chastening? Verse 17. As God speaks of the end of the chastening of Israel, He says that the end of their chastening will be that their hands will be feeble, and their knees shall be weak as water. You say, Pastor, what do you, what do you mean? How does that prove that these two chapters are about chastening? Uh, bear with me. God is promising in these verses that due to their chastening, they will have feeble hands and weak knees. The implication is that God's chastening is going to bring them to the very limits of their human endurance. But this wasn't the end of their chastening. This was the chastening to bring them to their end. Turn to Isaiah chapter 35. This is good. You're going to like this. Isaiah chapter 35. In this prophecy in Isaiah 35, the prophet foresees the day when Israel will finally come out of the wilderness of God's chastening hand. They will finally be out of God's chastening and they will, they will become the people that God has desired them to be. And on that day, God says, the weak hands promised in Ezekiel 7 verse 17 will be strengthened 
and the feeble knees will be confirmed. Look with me beginning in verse 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance even God with a recompense, He will come and save you. The desert, the weariness, the parched places of the chastening of the hand of God in the, in the, the desert of that chastening, God says the rose will blossom and the feeble knees and the weak knees will be made strong. The feeble knees that God speaks of in Ezekiel chapter 7 are made strong in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 35. As the chastening hand of God has accomplished its purpose, they have been brought to the end of their selves and now God is going to lift them up and strengthen them to rejuvenate His people. And that's the entire object of chastening. This is why Proverbs 3 tells us not to despise the chastening hand of the Lord. And... Let me give you one more cross-reference in regard to this and, and chastening. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Let me read to you those verses. The author of Hebrews speaking to believers, and he says this, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For verily, for a few days, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Here it is again. What Ezekiel said would happen in Ezekiel chapter 7. Their hands will hang down, their knees will be feeble because they will be in the midst of chastening. But God says the end of that chastening is the strengthening of the hands, is the strengthening of the knees. And as God announced it for Israel, so too, Hebrews says it's for you and for I, that if you're not chastened by God, you're not one of His sons. But if you are chastened by God, don't despise His chastening. No chastening for the moment seems joyous. It seems grievous. It's terrible. But if the chastening does its work, and it will, then God will bring you back to Himself and it will bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness to you who are exercised thereby and your feeble knees at the end of that chastening and your weak hands at the end of that chastening will be strengthened, will be renewed, and you will find yourself in the arms of a loving Father. It's good news. Not bad news. It's a blessed message. It's not a downer tonight. It's a good one. Thank the Lord for His chastening hand. Chastening is a mark of divine love intended to draw the wayward son back to a loving father. The end of chastening is righteousness. Through this righteousness, 
we will find that joy, that life that we can live more abundantly. May God help us to be a people. By God's grace, we don't need the chastening, but when we need it, by God's grace, let's not despise it. Let's learn the lessons. If you're in unrepentant sin this evening, may I encourage you, get it taken care of tonight. Don't wait. Don't think about it. Don't say, I'm just going to hold off for a little while. Let me think about how. Get it taken care of tonight. Confess it to God. God will forgive. Even if it's 10,000 talents, He will forgive. Don't allow yourself to continue on that path of unrepented sin. Because the chastening hand of God will come. And while we speak of it in a positive light, no chastening for the moment seems joyous, but grievous. Let's pray together.